Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to E-H-R-L-U-N-D.S-E for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey everyone, welcome to the Joey Surges Forum podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in. And uh, today we're going to be talking to special guest Jay Moss. Am I saying that right? You are. Correct. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Thank you for joining us and welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I just want to say that Jay is in Australia right now, and it's seven thirty in the morning. And I think I feel like seven thirty in the morning studio time is more like waking up at three a.m. for something. Hold so. on a second, I do that shit every single day of my entire career. Yeah, but yeah, but you're a unicorn. Yeah, man, you're a unicorn. You're one of those weirdos. I agree. It's early. <laughs> now, do you ever find? I, I guess we'll just open this right up because I, I want this is a questions on topic about time time waking up in the morning and stuff. Do you get bands to to get on that level or or what is it? How does that work for you? Uh, it varies, but typically, yeah, I I have bands adhere to my schedule just because my studio is usually booked out with night sessions and B room sessions and all this stuff too. So it's it's pretty important that they come in during you know, the hours that we kind of allocated. That's not to say that a lot of times sessions don't run late or whatever, but uh, yeah, typically we try to get everybody up, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, coffee, let's go. <laughs> so you mean you run your business like an actual organized business? That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I try, kind right? the, uh, I try to. Kind of the opposite of what most uh, studio experiences I've been a part of have been. So yeah, as I understand it, you... When you trained at Berkeley, what can you tell us a little bit about that? And kind of just maybe just give us your story in terms of how you got started. And I want to just, before you say that, was it worth it? <laughs> okay, so this is actually a I dropped good story. Out. I dropped out, so I've got my opinion. Oh, did so, you? Yeah, what's yours? Yeah. <laughs> I bet I dropped out quicker. Um, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so basically, uh, when I was in between my junior and senior year of high school, I think my mom realized pretty early, like, the only thing my child is going to be good at is music and skateboarding. And there's probably more money in music, arguably, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, and uh, so I went to the Berkeley summer sessions, which is like this five week intensive course that focuses on my guitar playing songwriting. Oh, um, I graduated in 98. So it must've been 97. Whoa. That's when I went. No way. Yeah. To the summer session. Yeah, dude, totally. That's really weird. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was I was there in '97, and um, the trajectory of my life really just looked like okay, it looks like Jay's going to be playing music. So I ended up uh, applying for and getting into Berkeley the following year, which is insane because my grades were terrible due to the skateboarding and music, <laughs> and um, 
And so I got in and I was in line to get my photo ID. And I just was like, dude, I don't want to do this. It was like so much money. <laughs> and I was like, I just want Cause like I had another band and we were supposed to go on tour and there's all this shit. And I was just like, fuck this. So I just didn't, um, I got out of line and I went up to the bursar's office and was like, Hey, can I get my money back? And they were pretty good. They were like, yeah, actually you can get most. And I was like, great, let's do that. And, um, instead I went and I rolled in a computer science program and yeah, but then I just kept touring and touring and touring. So I've been finishing that degree still, uh, online. I'll finish this year. Um, but even now that I'm not in Defeater anymore, I still travel a ton for recording. So I still need to do like a degree that's, I don't know, flexible with my location. Is there a reason you feel the need to finish it? Is it like just because you like to finish what you started or is there an actual career reason to finish it? Cause it sounds like career wise things are already in place. Yeah. Career wise things are pretty good. Um, the, my reasons for finishing would be money I've already invested into it. Like I get nothing from it if I don't finish it. I'm just like, the type of person that finishes things. And even if it takes me a decade, um, (laughs) and, and, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other thing too, is like, I'm a very avid planner. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, well down the road, like, am I going to be, I mean, the industry's already changed so much in the last 10 years, like 10 years from now, like maybe I'm still a relevant force. Hopefully I'm still a relevant force. I'll definitely be the best engineer I can be in 10 years. I'll be 10 years better than I am now. The bigger question for me is like, is that going to matter to kids? Like I always feel like I'm in that movie hook, you know, where like, but I'm the only one getting older, like, like I'm in Neverland and like, <laughs> yes, Peter like, Pan. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm in Neverland and um, everyone is staying the same age. Like my clients are all in their, you know, mid twenties and I just keep getting older and better, but will I be the relevant option for them in 15 years? You know, when I'm 50, I hope, I don't know. It's good to, it's good to think that way in my opinion, because you don't want to be the guy who didn't think that way and then not be relevant and have a horrible situation when you're that age. Yeah, totally. My, my ultimate dream is to get this degree and then never use it. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I find that interesting because I know I was in, I mean, I wasn't in technically in a computer science class of any sort, but I was definitely into computer science. And that played a huge role in how I approach everything from editing to production to business to hobbies and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's really cool to meet another person who is in audio, mostly in audio, but also into computer science. Like, do you think about it from a computer science perspective at all? Like, uh, does any of that apply to the way you approach production? Oh, totally. I mean, when I first started, actually, Joey, I listened to your podcast, the Working Class Audio podcast, and that's the first time I had heard that you were so into computer science, and it made a ton of sense. So when I first started recording, my mentor was Kurt Ballou from Converge. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, Kurt rules. Um, And, you know, Kurt... I just was like this squeaky wheel that Kurt who kept being like, listen to my mix, listen to my mix, you know, and eventually we became friends and he was actually willing to do so. Um, but you know, I'm like a computer science dude whose favorite band is Fugazi. So my, while I was approaching everything from a software standpoint, both from a financial position, because, you know, I'd go to God city and the place is 
full of awesome gear and it's really really impressive but i was like dude it just seemed like such an insurmountable task to acquire all that shit so i was like i want to do this but i definitely cannot afford to do it the way kurt is doing it so I would take like a lot of his input and I would apply it to the software domain. I'm an avid Cubase. <laughs> That's a pun. I'm an avid Cubase user. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so I started on uh, Nuendo and then after Yamaha bought Steinberg and the two product lines sort of branched off, I obviously followed the Cubase line, um, but use Pro Tools like on a near daily basis because uh, I travel so much. But yeah, so I don't know. I really do. I think I think about things from like a software standpoint first, but then I've gotten into hardware because my influences started there. So I'm like really into pieces that are great either on the way in, like distressors or like 500 series EQs or stuff like that. And then I'm really interested on things on my bus work, but less interested on like stemming out a rack tom to a bunch of outboard gear just to print it back in. You know what I mean? I'll make some adjustments on the way in. And What are some of your favorite pieces going in? For me, I have a retro audio stay level that I think is awesome, especially on the right vocalist, uh, combined with like the right mic and right, I like two preamps for vocals typically. That stay level is sick, and you combine it with a distressor. Distressor's doing more of that like lop off the transient stuff, and the stay level's doing more of the sweetened mojo juicy tube stuff what what does it what is the stay level i've heard of it but i don't really know what it is think of it as like a mono very that's typically used for tracking so it's you know how like very compressors basically get their compression by varying the voltage to a tube so it's like that so it's just it's another take on a very on a very compression i think very compression is like terrible for transients. Like I had a manly Varimu. I might get another one. They're really good, but I had a manly Varimu and I hated the compression, but I loved the color. Just something about running shit through there. It's not modern or grabby, but it has like this, it has like a high end sheen that I don't know how to EQ into anything. And it, that, I don't know if it's the sheen or if it's just a combination, but it also does something like really pleasing to the low mids. Just takes away some boxiness, adds some like big bottom stuff, almost like if you couldn't adjust very mild settings on a Poltec or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got a massive passive and, you know, sometimes I'll just use it on my master bus, even if I don't EQ, just because I like how it sounds engaged. There's just a certain, yeah, that's a great piece. you know, something to it that it just adds and either you like it or you don't. Yep, pretty much. The problem I'm finding is just that you know, with recall and workflow and the expense of having, you know, stay levels or massive passives or very muse around. It's just like, what I did is I did like an Andrew Shep style blind shootout to my clients and was like, here's one with a very mu, here's one without, you know, as far as the clients are concerned, half of them are like, I like this one. I like that one. They don't really, they didn't notice. So it was hard to justify the cost and it was also hard to justify the hit to my workflow from like a personal sonic standpoint, I typically liked the Varimu better, but you have to ask yourself too, is that just because I'm a big nerd? I know what's running through the Varimu. Do I actually prefer this? Am I trying to justify my expense? <laughs> so uh, workflow wise, but I'd be interested to know how you balance using so much outboard, but also quick turnaround times that are required nowadays. Well, 
<laughs> typically for pieces of gear, they don't have, like, I have Fato that I use on next to everything. I have found little that doesn't sound better after running it through the Fato. I think it's really just the second and third harmonic generation that just brings things forward. It's really pleasing. You can make things ugly with it, but it's kind of hard. But things like my Fato, which are pretty easy, really easily recallable, I'll do quick recalls. So I commit a lot of hardware on the way in, and then I will use pieces that aren't a complete and total nightmare to recall on the way out, bus work, drum bus, stereo bus, uh, you know, maybe stereo vocal bus. But I do print as much of that back in as I possibly can. If I could, I wish there was a way to print my drum bus stuff back in and still be flexible enough to have someone say like, can you add a kick drum? You know, (laughs) like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you kind of can't. So, but there's also some really great plugins like that Vertigo VSC2 compressor plugin is sick. Um, it actually kind of sounds like hardware. Again, clients don't fucking care. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I use that. I use my Fatso, but most of my hardware stuff's on the way in. I think committing is so important. Anyways, even if you're not trying to do it to save time, it just makes for better mixes. Totally agree. It's like a, a state of mind to get into and to really put yourself out there as well to learn from your lessons or learn from your mistakes. You know, if you, if, you put something out into the world on a deadline and you weren't 100% happy with it, you're going to be a little bit more careful about your choices and your decisions uh, on your next project. And that's going to make you better. So that's very important, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, I love printing through hardware when you're tracking in terms of committing because it helps you position things for mixing. Because if you use a different transformer or op amp or just, you know, whatever, it kind of like gives each piece of, uh, or say, piece of audio you run through it like a different identity. So you can position your guitars around your you know, symbols, for example, by just using a different piece of gear and getting its sound on it. So it helps kind of set up stuff for mixing. So I definitely am with you, Jay. I love tracking as much stuff as I can through hardware. And I'll just unnecessarily put something through a piece of gear just to get its tone, even if I'm not using it. Yeah, actually, a trick I've been using is, uh, you know, my patch base all half normal. So I'll just patch in like I'll let a clean signal go down right into my converters. And then, uh, especially with things like transients, drums and stuff, and then I'll just shoot like, okay, cool. Here's my snare on the way in. I'm going to EQ this with like maybe an API 550B and then I'm going to hit like a distressor or whatever on the way in. And like, as far as I can tell, like this sounds fucking sick. And, but I also have a uncompressed version coming in at the exact same time. I get basically two for one off of one mic. And then if I want to use drum samples or something like that, I can trigger off the uncompressed. I can blend in the compressed. All that stuff's already kind of done for me, which is tight. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I've totally done that before as well. Do you, uh, just out of curiosity, do you mix as you go or is it a whole separate process for you? Oh, I totally mix as I go. Yeah, for sure. So by the time the recording is done, is it kind of close to final-ish? Yeah, I mean, I like making those decisions with the artist. So a lot of times a band's like, okay, we have this much time for tracking and I'm like can you stick around for mixing I'm probably one of the few engineers that likes wow. att- attended mixing sessions better I think you're the uh, only one that we've talked to it in over 60 episodes who said that <laughs> like can you uh, guys think of another guy who said that no no you're you're, uh, the, you're, you're the one you're the unicorn yeah <laughs> tell us your ways proud to be uh no see I really like it because I usually have the band pull up pour a glass of bourbon, beer, I don't know, coffee, depends what time of day. <laughs> Is it afternoon? And um, then we'll just kind of kick it 
And I just like hitting space bar. And then like when I hear something that sucks, I'll just hit it again and be like, yo, what do you think about blah, 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 totally rearranging this. Like having the artist with me for that also being a creative process is really, really fun for me. Also, it makes the, I don't know, you're like taking the artist on the adventure with you. So they have the memories of like when you guys made that decision together, you're way less likely to get them to fucking hem and haw about like, well, I don't really know if I like that effect. And if they don't like it, they'll tell you right then. And they're like, yeah, I think I liked it better before. And you're like, cool, done, sorted, over, right? So like you make them a part of the mixing experience and then there might still be like one or two little like, I can't hear the octave guitar or like some bullshit like later. (laughs) But, you know, by and large, by the time they walk out the door, they're usually like, dude, we think it sounds fucking awesome. They're, they're emotionally committed, you know, as well. I guess the fact that you're mixing along the way too helps. It's not like you're starting from scratch with the artist there. Yeah, I would not want to do that. Like, I would at least want to get a mix up that when we start to play it, they're already like, yo, this is sick. But we do that while we work. Now, that's different, of course. Like, I do a ton of work for bands that I never meet. So in that case... I ask for references. I try to get on a call and talk about what they're after. A lot of times, like the bands, especially if they work with me, they feel like I have to tell Jay that I want it really natural. And I'm like, okay, cool. What does that mean to you? And sometimes the records they reference are like, you know, really natural, like this record. And I'm like, that's not natural. That's, yeah, that's like fucking programmed. Um, So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Really natural, like that. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, do you use any special tricks to try to decipher what the artist actually means as opposed to what they say? Yeah, I'm mostly references like, what are you guys listening yeah. to? Like, what do you like? You know, that's so much better than listening to them, like, try to wax on about their own, like, sonic envisionment for themselves, which is usually close to useless. Yeah, make it sound like it's in space. That's one of my favorite yeah. notes. Yeah, that ever shit heard. is insane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You mean make got, it sound like nothing? I got a mixed note uh, this year. It said, all right, we love the way it sounds. Hey, can you do a mix where the guitars are quieter on headphones? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good what one. The fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. What I was, the I was fuck? like, that's called a second mix. <laughs> it's like some Twilight Zone shit. Like, I don't even know what to say to something like that. Yeah. I would just yeah. delete the email. <laughs> I would. Uh, I think what would happen for me is the the translator and me would come out you know how we talked about being a producer is like being a musical translator because people don't know what the fuck they're talking about i think that was our second episode ever by the way musical translator for those of you listening so it's like if someone tells me that then that tells me that the something to do with the panning or the spatial like relationship is off you know, like maybe the guitars need to be more mono or, or like less yep. mono or whatever. So yeah. Stereo widener bullshit. Turn it off. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think this was a case of, of mid range. I think this was a case of, they played in like a really low drop tuning when they took it to their home system. They were like, this sounds sick. And then didn't find themselves having that same power on smaller listening devices. So what and we ended up doing was like actually fatso like a ton of harmonic generation which represents those low fundamentals like up in the higher frequencies and then they were happy but you know mix it so it's louder in headphones or whatever i was just like fuck me <laughs> <laughs> you just got to become a de- detective and understand what they actually mean i think i yeah, saw exactly. jay rustin say I, I he posted once that he got a mix note that said 
could you turn up the drums, guitar, vocals, and keyboards? And his response was, why don't I just turn down the bass? Right. <laughs> yeah, just turn down the bass and it was solved. Yeah, yeah. I think being a recording engineer is funny because you do have to do a lot of that translating, and especially if you do a lot of tracking too. You're like, like, you're like a therapist. You're like a, you're like a UN negotiator. Like, you have to wear all these like weird hats. And like the one band member will be like trying to leverage his idea through you to other band members. Like Jay, don't you think this is a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's so classic. How do you deal with that kind of stuff? I draw those lines pretty quickly. You know, I'm like, guys, this is your product. I'll always give you my honest opinion, but nobody's allowed to get butthurt with me because we're just trying to make a good record. All in it for the same reason. Yeah, totally. Hopefully. I like that. And that's something that we heard from Wade, you know. I think he said that on the show. Yeah, he said Pretty that. Sure. Basically, yeah, he did. He said that the way he tells bands is that they shouldn't get offended because they're all in it for the same reason, which is the best song possible so that everyone can, you know, profit from it. And it's not about the money, but if the song does well, everybody's careers will keep on going. And that's uh, that's the name of the game is to be able to keep going. So don't get offended by a suggestion or something everybody's everybody's in it to win it yeah totally and i think i deal with like maybe the other side of clients more than he does i deal with clients who are too fucking punk who don't who are like want to in, basically ensure that people aren't gonna like it sometimes <laughs> you know like <laughs> like that's great yeah i'll always be adding these suggestions like for kind of like listener accessibility reasons like guys we haven't repeated a part and everything's distorted like <laughs> what? can i get the black metal low end please yeah like can we do this and people are like oh, i don't know man i'm not trying to sell out <laughs> like oh dude trust me you're not <laughs> <laughs> so like how do you phrase it differently to guys who have the the elitist kind of mentality like do you try to phrase it in a way that won't trigger the uh that's corporate music shit mentality not maybe i should not really my give a fucks are so low that i just (laughs) am just so straight up i'm just like yeah i think that's stupid you know (laughs) (laughs) boom i think we've talked about that too like you know it's important to be honest like that like but to also know when that doesn't necessarily make sense i think as well because there's been times where you know being brutally honest wasn't the best course of action. So I, I'm curious if you've ever encountered that or if you're just straightforward always. No, yeah. Look, I've li- literally never been a dick to any of my clients and I never would be like outright a dick. And if I'm saying like, hey, that's stupid, we've already like developed a rapport where I can say that to them and they know that I'm just not a passive aggressive person. I'm not going to take shit personally. We're all here for the same reason. So yeah, you handle different clients differently. They all get handled very honestly and I'm pretty direct, but, but yeah, totally. You, you know, my first day or two of the recording is figuring out like, okay, like who's the little bitch of the band, like who actually knows what they're doing, you know, and like figuring out like (laughs) who's, you know, and then what, cause every band has like the fake democracy where, yeah, you know, like where everyone's like, yeah, my opinion matters, but probably there's only one opinion in the room that matters and figure maybe out, two. okay, who's, maybe two, like, who's that guy, you know? And then how do I primarily deal with that guy without making the rest of the band feel like I'm only dealing with that guy? What about when it's that guy, but that guy's not like the boss? So like, you know, when the most talented guy with the best vision happens to be like 
a beta male or something. Uh, yeah, I just dealt with that. And, I, you know, you give that guy a lot of love and support. You're like, I really think, not to name names, but because I just recorded this band and they'll figure it out. But I really <laughs> think such and such has a really good idea right now. Why don't we try that out? And then like idiot alpha male guy will then be like, not wanting to step on my toes because they like hired me and I'm supposed to be the all-knowing audio god who's going to change their life. And and then we try the idea, lo and behold, it works. And then you basically start to build a foundation for that dude in the band. Like, hey, yeah, another one of his ideas that seemed to be not stupid. Hmm, maybe we should listen to him. (laughs) He's three for three. Come on, keep him coming. I've actually had experiences where the, I guess the, the musical alpha male is not the alpha male in in the band hierarchy personality wise and he this has happened a few different times so when i say he i mean a combination of like five different guys is he mm. uh he will uh purposefully take himself out of the equation like somehow be out to dinner or doing something or not available so that he doesn't have to um cause any sort of disruption against the other guy. So I had a situation on a record I did a couple of years ago where one guitar player was fucking stellar and the other guy really sucked. The guy who was stellar was just kind of a pussy. And uh, it was one of these things where it's not like one guy is like, okay. And the other guy's pretty good. It was like, you know, one guy's a plus and the other guy's a D minus. Um, so he, <laughs> I tried to communicate to him that I needed him in the room while we were tracking guitars at all time. So instead of argue with me or anything, he just left. <laughs> he, like he, <laughs> like he didn't want to even like confront me and be like, uh, well, I don't want them to feel bad or whatever. He just left completely, uh, came back like the next day. And so I recorded the song with the other guy. And then when he, heard it he kind of flipped out because he was like why does that sound like shit because you left yeah because you left <laughs> dude because you wouldn't you wouldn't you weren't gonna track it you didn't track it that's why it sounds like shit it's not you it should be you yeah yeah i think it's a really great point to just reiterate you know since we're kind of in the middle of it talking about how important psychology is just how actually important freaking learning psychology and learning how to read and work with different types of personalities is as a producer. It's like probably one of the most important skill sets you can develop as a producer. And it's just absolutely the cornerstone of most human interaction you're going to have here in the studio. Yeah. I mean, it's huge for client client retention too. It's huge also for just being a dude who gets hired or gets an internship or whatever. Yeah, for sure. um, Guys who creep people out or whatever, even if they're skilled, won't get gigs as opposed to people who are just cool to be around. Oh, 100%. I think that that works for all aspects of life, but definitely in the studio too. It's like usually such like a emotionally stressful environment. You need like dudes who like people just like, you know, like my, I went through so many interns and the assistant I have now is like the fucking man and people just like, they, they like him better than they like me. You know what I mean? Like they just, <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, he's just like super talented, super hardworking. Everyone likes him. And that was like one of the main factors. Like when he came and I met him for the first time, I was like, oh, like I just like kind of want to like kick it with this dude, which means probably other people do too. I've had that situation with uh, this dude, John Douglas, uh, where he's just nicer than me. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> he is. He's just nicer than me. 
what, what can I do? I'm a fucking dick. These things but, happen. Yeah, no, it, I think that's that's a really good thing. I definitely have had guys who, well, John is an amazing engineer, so let's not include him in this. But I've had guys who were somewhat skilled, but were just weirdos, and uh, never I, I couldn't justify taking the time to work them into the process because you constantly have to deal with them weirding out the clients, and that's. You know, it doesn't matter how good you are if you're weirding out the clients. Yeah, and, and you usually know because the client will kind of like give you a look like, hey, man, fuck this guy, you know, and <laughs> you're like, you know, and you kind of look at the client like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> usually make a comment to you within the yeah. first two or three days if they don't like it. Yeah, so we mentioned this earlier, but I just want to bring this up. You're, you said that you travel a lot for recording, and uh, it's interesting because uh, I used to tour like 10 months a year. And when I decided to stop touring and go studio full time, and now with what I do with all this online stuff, one of the things that has remained important to me is traveling and working in different places. Like I've never been able to shake that bug. Have you always been into traveling or is it since touring, you just have always wanted to keep that being in different places a part of your life? Uh, Yeah, it's really ironic because I'm such a homebody and I I have to work and I go where the business is and I go where the good opportunities are. I'm not so much of a homebody. I'd shoot myself in the foot, but (laughs) like, no, actually I don't really like traveling that much, but I've chosen to be in a band my whole life. And then now be an engineer that does projects overseas all the time. So (laughs) that's odd how that worked out, but um, I don't like hate it. It's fine. But like, I have like this cool house with like my coffee maker and my big TV and like all my shit, you know? And I'm just like, kind of maybe it's just because i've been on the road for like the last 17 years i understand i just just like miss and sort of romanticize what it is to like wake up and wipe my ass with my towel you know what i mean uh and you can trade with me because i need to get the hell out (laughs) well in uh in 2015 i made it a point to travel as little as possible because i had racked up 75,000 sky miles like the last three years in a row like every year and it was over it like I just wanted to stay in one place and focus on building what uh what we're all building together and uh that was nice but I feel ready to travel now like I've been like at Joey's place for a month and a half and if he doesn't kill me I'm having a I'm having a good time like I'm enjoying (laughs) not being home (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool. I personally don't like working in new environments. I think it's really destructive to the flow. I think the one of the most important things that has been very, very responsible for for my success is becoming comfortable in my own spot. You know, getting the table at the right height, getting the mouse pad that you like, getting the speakers put in just the right place, getting the right screen that you like. All these things for um, sure you know that to me was everything um and also being pre- doing that was was what made me prepared for pretty much anything a band would ever throw at me you know a band would come in and say oh we want to do this we want to do that well i'd had everything set up to where that was like pretty much on doable like what you know whatever it is if you go into a you know like a commercial facility like a normal studio like let's say nrg studios or something everything that you want to do is totally doable but the problem is it all is just going to take time because they set it up and tear it down and because Mm -hmm. different clients are always coming in and out and it 
it really is kind of like a roadblock sometimes, um, especially if someone's coming into the studio and they're all amped up and there's like in a creative zone or something. And then like you've got two hours of setup and they just like lose that, you know, uh, it's, I can't uh, agree more. it happens a lot. So I totally see that. Yeah. But don't you ever go stir crazy? I mean, for example, I've been operating out of the same, well, two spots now for eternity. And it's just like after six months to a year, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get the hell out of here. I gotta go fly somewhere on vacation. It's gotta be really exotic and it's gotta be very different from here because I'm just sick of being in the same shit every single day. And I, I'm with you on definitely like workflow, but I always lose my mind if I'm doing the same thing for too long same. in the same location. Same this here. is interesting because like a lot of bands go through this too. And I've noticed that. And part of my whole this goes in a lot of different ways. Like part of the whole experience for, for what I do, like being out in the country and being away from things that's super attractive to labels and managers because they're like, Oh, yep. the band's going to be working on the album. They're not going to be going to the fucking whiskey go, go or the rainbow room or whatever it's called <laughs> every night. That sounds cool. But then you get the band in and you've got to deal with them, right? You've got to deal with how bored they are, how interested they are, keeping them on track and productive and all that. So I don't know. I've, I've got a situation now where I feel like it works pretty well, but uh, it's super important. Like once you start getting further and further into your career, it's you got to you got to find a way to balance everything. You, you know, I'm just going to say that this is a perfect example of how just different people work different ways. And it's most important for people to figure out what works best for them. Because if I'm in the same place for too long, I almost feel like the light bulb doesn't turn on as bright as usual. Like it gets duller and duller as the situation becomes more and more comfortable. And when I go to a new place, it's a lot easier for me to keep a tighter schedule and to be a lot more like in the moment and just do a better job. It's, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, I've got a pretty sick home setup too. And um, there's a lot of value in that. I just like to keep a balance of home time and travel for work time. I like both. Yeah. I'll also say that uh, it's weird because I don't get stir crazy, but throughout, I mean, since the age of like 18, I've literally sat on a computer yeah, pretty much same. as as many waking hours as possible. So I, I'm kind of into that, but other bands are uh, pretty much every band is not. I think my parents fucked me up. I think that's what it is because <laughs> um, they just had me traveling from the time that I was born like all the time and it's cool and all but i feel like that was probably just ingrained from a really really young age that that's how life is and so if i don't do that i don't know i feel like it's got something to do with that because the amount that i traveled in those formative years is kind of unreasonable so it's pro probably stems back from that thanks mom yeah totally. i feel you there i traveled <laughs> and moved a ton but I think, f I think for me, I'm probably just romanticizing home because I just was like, I'm never there. Uh, and like, I'm super bad at vacation, you know, like any girl I've ever dated has just hated my guts because it will, <laughs> so many reasons, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, uh, one, one of which would be 
you know, we're like, oh, we're finally like at the beach. Isn't this great? And I'm just like, dude, this fucking sucks. Like it's sandy and uh, the water's cold and I have emails coming in and <laughs> dude, I'm just the worst. <laughs> got to like, turn off that internet and that phone. Impossible. I understand. <laughs> I have to do it by force. So I've just adapted. This is going to sound weird, but I, I totally had to learn how to vacation. And one of the quickest ways to do that, and this is, this is a, a suggestion to anyone listening who doesn't know how to vacation properly, um, like you, Jay, is uh, you gotta just put yourself in a scenario where that shit just isn't available to you. Like, I went on a cruise and the internet was like fucking $20 a minute or some shit. Right. It was just retarded. It was just to the point where it's like, I'm not wasting my money on this. I'm not gonna get the internet you don't have cell phone signal. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're in the ocean. You go out on the ship. You look around. All you can see is blue water and blue sky, and there's nothing else. There's no land visible in any direction. And it forces you to just have a good time and to be on vacation. And uh, that's a good first one, a good first vacation for anybody is struggling with that. That's actually all what right. I like about cruises, too, is that you literally have no choice in the matter. Um, because if I have a choice, I'm going to answer my emails why do you think i always go to weird places in russia because they don't have fucking <laughs> internet and iphone and all that shit and it's like there's literally no way for me to communicate so when i come back in three weeks i've actually relaxed because i haven't checked my email 72 times a day compulsory i don't have any voicemails or texts freaking me out right before i go to bed and you know it's it's nice you can actually enjoy yourself you have to physically unplug it's the only way to do it i go to weird places in russia uh for reasons that may not be appropriate for this podcast, but that's another good, good reason to go. <laughs> we got to compare notes then. <laughs> reasons that are not appropriate for the podcast. Now, that's interesting. Well, now, hold on. <laughs> what kind of podcast is this? <laughs> yeah. Let's so change the let's format. Just, let's just say, uh, yeah, let's change the subject on that one. Um, <laughs> we do have a couple questions from the audience. Maybe we can jump into that. We are getting close to time here, so let's see what we got. Daniel. Let's just say Daniel. Uh, thanks for being subscribable, Daniel. Um, he's asking, how does you? How do you process your rooms? And I'm, I'm assuming he means drum rooms. Well, yeah, and he says, in a general philosophy about how you keep things sounding natural while still punching through a mix. Yeah, I get that question a lot. I think... I was actually going to write a tweet, but forgot yesterday about room mics and about how it's funny that I'll set up like 16 mics, but my, like, there's two little mics that no one notices in the back of the room that are doing half the work at least. So it really, because they are room mics, it really, really depends on the room. If you have a really small room, it's borderline, like don't even bother, but you can get some awesome results if the drums have a little bit of area to breathe. Very, very selective equalization is really important. So, you know, mitigate the things that are annoying in the EQ um, and try to highlight the things that are cool. I find really, I just mitigate the annoying and that sort of highlights the things that are cool for me. And then good compression, like compressors that are awesome. Uh, distressors are obviously a first choice for this. Uh, 1176s are really good for this. Um, and the plugin iteration, like the CLA 76 is totally doable. I was using like the API 2500 plug to do this for a while, but I just don't think it's as open as the CLA 76. So you could use that or like a, you could use the UA 76 too. Um, but in phase management, so like if you aren't out there with a tape measure 
you know, while you're setting up your drums. And if you don't like fully understand phase, that's like the first thing. Because uh, you can't you. have your room mics doing you any, f- yeah, you can't under- like have your room mics or any of your mics doing you any favors until you truly understand phase. So once you understand phase, then get your measuring tape out, do your stuff. Then before you record anything, get like deep into your samples, make sure like all your transients are lining up, like nip that shit in the bud. Then you can just work and you won't have problems on the back end because like time align and phase issues on the back end of a mix, you're fucked, man. Like you're just totally crippled. So um, if you get all that stuff right, your drums should sit very nicely into your rooms. I do an XY pair almost always in like basically the, as far away from the kit as I can get. I'm not worried about my hi-hat being on the left and my ride cymbal being on the right or anything like that. These are two like iterations of reflected mono that are capturing uh, the amplitude of the waveform at the exact same time. So they're basically two phase compatible mono iterations of the drum set that I then hard pan because it still sounds fairly centered since the capsules of the microphones are so close to begin with. Um, and... Yeah, dude. And then you can do it two ways. You can start with those and then start tucking close mics in, or you can start with close mics and start tucking the rooms in. I just kind of sit there and juggle the faders till it sounds cool to me. But the most important thing is like a lot of times on room mics, you're going to have to shave off some like super high end. You're probably going to have to shave like there'll be one or two spots where your cymbals have resonant frequencies in those rooms in the mid range, anywhere from like two to like 12k there might be a couple peaks that are like piercing annoying fuck it like you can get in there and notch those if you want um and then maybe some just general like what do i want the vibe like these rooms sound boomy cool so let's high pass a little bit and let's like tilt down a little bit you don't have to be a scientist about it but just like make them sound cool to you and compress them with something like uh, an appealing compressor i guess um yeah but that's like question i I have a question about your rooms actually about lining them up. So when you have a distant room, for instance, and naturally the transient will come in a little later, uh, not like not like yeah, when totally. you have a, a top snare and bottom snare that are out of phase or something, like when the transient just happens later because it's further away, do you line those up to the, to the no, direct transient? Um, okay, I don't either. No, yeah, because... If yeah, if the transient in the room waveform is far enough away, like appropriately far enough away, it's going to be further back than basically almost all the energy of the close mic piece of the transient anyway. So it's not really conflicting with the bulk of like the close mic transient. It's like its own thing, um, and that little bit of delay is part of what makes it sound bigger. Yes, cool. Yeah, some guys line. When they line stuff, I just wanted to clarify this because I didn't want people to think that you meant line like line up every single transient, like even distant mics. Because I know some guys who do that. I've tried it. it sounds weird. Like it doesn't like what gives yeah, it that I don't think length it right. is the is that delay. Hundred percent. All right. So we have a question from Wes Deloach, which is uh, well, two part question. First is I'd like to know if Jay works with any amp sims and how he feels about them. And I would also like to hear what his typical mastering chain consists of, specifically what he uses for mix bus compression and how hard he compresses the mix. Uh. Okay, um, so amp sims and I don't typically play that nicely, but that's just like there are a million great records that use sims. Actually, records I didn't even think had sims on them, I found out were simmed. Oh, dude, like perfect example, even though it's Axe Effects, that like 
that Deftones record with the weird Japanese name, that record sounds sick. And then I found out it's all Axe Effects. And I was like, well, fuck me. Like, <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for most of the bands I get, I have a Kemper. I kind of think it sucks. Like, I don't really use it that much. It To me, it just sounds weird in 2D. And as a guitar player, I, I don't know. What, I'm just not, what like, firmware not do you feeling have? it. It's newest firmware. I, I, maybe I haven't dicked around with it enough, but there's like an inherent color to the Kemper, I guess, yes. for lack of a better term, that like I hear immediately. And it's actually for me more on the back end of the note than the front end. So I think it does a good job of like and like getting like the attack of the note okay, but it's like the resonance of the note that doesn't seem to be as like nice on my ears as like the resonance of just a speaker moving against a mic. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it that's been different on different firmware versions. And what's interesting is that they got it right, and then on a future update, they got it wrong. Uh, of course, so I've kept mine on the ver. I don't remember which one it is. I'll I'll like look it up and uh, email it to you. But there is a version where they got, especially the low end, which was one of the biggest problems with it. They got that right, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And on the shittier firmware versions, that's definitely an issue. Yeah, and for me, I own like a ton of awesome amps. I own a bunch of great cabs and mics and stuff. So like, I actually find it's quicker to just like throw up a microphone that is good in front of a guitar sound that is good and fucking call it a day rather than like dick around with like well like all this shit with the camper i'm usually not as happy with it anyway it's usually a little less inspiring to the types of artists that i use um i also almost never track i almost never track di's i'm like super committal so even when i'm overseas like people are like how come you're not taking a di i'm like because i'm punk as fuck but um (laughs) you know punk ass there you go you guys yeah Yeah. that's awesome yeah so i just like yeah i mean like do you like the way it sounds like it sounds good today right and they're like yeah and i'm like so like it'll probably sound good tomorrow you know so (laughs) Um. (laughs) you know i love it Trusting your taste is really important. Totally, dude. Totally. Um, and to touch upon uh, that guy's question on mastering and mixed bus compressors. So I'm a huge fan of, I've mentioned it already, but my Empirical Labs Fatso on bus work, it's great, especially for digital recordings. That's exactly what that piece of gear was intended to do, was like add like cool tape-ish harmonic stuff and also round off annoying like high-end stuff that a lot of times you don't even hear it depending on your monitoring system, but you'll be fucking happy that it's gone. And what's cool about the Fatso is that it attenuates that stuff dynamically. So it's not like a static EQ or anything. It's like the signal's coming in. I don't want to say it's analyzing the signal because it's not a computer, but you know, it's a real compressor with a detector path and it comes in and it's got that high-end attenuation circuit and it's totally variable. You know, it's like the best way to put it working with outward gear versus software is like software is an algorithm where like if you conduct the same experiment every time you'll get the same result but what's cool about hardware and to me sonically appealing is that you won't get the same result um in a good way it'll be fucking close you know what i mean it's like if you tried as hard as you could to hit the snare with your left hand at the same force in the center of the snare it's going to sound a shit ton like the snare that came before it but it will not be identical and from that's like I get my jollies from that shit. Like, I think that's cool. You know, even when you're programming drums, you should take that into consideration. Taking that kind of stuff into consideration, even when working with fake stuff, will help it sound 80 times better, in my opinion. Yep, I agree. I mean, in the rock genre anyway, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
we want to do a segment with you that we're going to rapid fire uh, gear choices to you. So Joel will mention an instrument, and we just want to hear the first thing that comes to mind. And uh, okay. feel free to go into detail or not go into detail or whatever you feel like sharing about it. Sweet. All right, here we go. Uh, overheads. Overheads would be my purple audio odd uh, equalizers. They're um, inductor EQs. They're super sweet on the top end. Trumpet. Did you just say trumpet? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I did. But, uh, that's the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was just making sure you guys are awake. Okay, distorted heavy electric guitar. Um, I guess I just used a Royer 101. It was awesome. Kick drum direct. Oh, uh, the tried and true, man. Uh, AKG D112. All right. How about uh, acoustic guitar? Oh, let's see. Uh, any nice small diaphragm condenser, probably an XY pair somewhere around the 12th fret. Call it about... 10 inches back. Bass. Bass. Stay level all day. Nice. What about, uh, let's see here, snare. Actually, people hate this. Uh, I really like MD421 on snare. People say the polarity pattern's too wide and there's too much hi-hat spill, and they're not wrong, but I think that the spill I get from the hi-hat is much more listener-friendly than that weird, like, mid-range 57 spill, off-access spill. So even though it has more spill, I think the spill is more usable. And for my mixing style, it just works better. Vocals. Vocals. Uh, this old company, they're gone now, uh, but they're called Soundelux. Uh, Soundelux U195. Uh, recently, or not that recently, but the country company was purchased by Bach. I haven't tried their stuff, but that old Soundelux stuff is awesome. Yeah, no kidding. I didn't know they were acquired. That's nuts. Yep. I remember when that mic came out. Uh, yeah, it's super good. Last but not least, how about piano? Piano, probably a space pair, maybe AKG C414. The dynamics are tricky with the piano so also super quiet preamp uh yeah all right well thanks for playing <laughs> awesome answers thank you again for joining us today we really appreciate your time and, and i'm glad to know that there's more of of people like me out there in the world that uh that think like a robot <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we should uh, we should start a support group. Yeah, maybe maybe that's in the near future. Some kind of Facebook support group for the <laughs> absolutely for us. Uh, so yeah, um, if people want to check you out, I know you have a website. I think it's uh, j a y m a a s dot com. Yep, check it out. You can uh, see some of the gear he's got on there. It's a pretty cool website. And uh, thanks thanks again, man. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Anytime. Yeah, thanks, Jay. It's been awesome. Cool. All right, see you guys. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloom Microphones. Heirloom Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloom, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit
visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.